<clears throat> so it's good to be with you all, and um, uh, you know, we when we sing, we sing, we sing truth. When we speak, we speak truth. When we read the Word of God, we read truth. All of it's worship, and um, and so it's a privilege and a joy to be part of the singing and the preaching and the hearing of God's Word. Um, so as we turn to uh, to hear from the Lord this morning through uh, the preached word, let's, let's pray again together. Lord, we bless your name. Uh, I love that song, Lord. Whatever may pass, whatever lies before us, Lord, we just ask that we'll be singing when the evening comes. And Lord, that 10,000 years from now, we'll be blessing your name with more joy and energy than we ever have before. And we long for that day. Lord, we thank you again for the privilege to gather together to praise you, but most of all, Lord, to hear from you, to be blessed by you. So minister to our hearts today, this morning, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you've got a Bible, please turn to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1. This morning, we're going to start our series through the book of uh, Galatians, and so we're going to be camping out here for, for, for some months, and uh, as I mentioned in my uh, letter in the bulletin, it's uh, already more challenging than I expected and, and, and edifying, more edifying than I expected as well. And as we contemplate the book of Galatians, think about the book of Galatians, we have to ask this question. What does it mean for a person to be saved? How is a person saved? Saved saved from what? That is saved from the wrath of God that all of us are due because of our sin. We sin both by nature and by choice. We look up to heaven, either consciously or unconsciously, and say, not thy will be done, but my will be done. And because of that, we're under the just wrath of God. How then can we be saved from our sins? Or we could put it another way. How does a person find favor with God? How does a person get ultimately into a state of favor with God? Do we find favor with God by going to church? What kind of church? Baptist church? Probably. Okay. Do we stand right with God because we read our Bibles? How much should we read our Bibles? And when? Where? Should we read the KJV, the NIV, ESV, or CSB? And that's assuming that God prefers English. Who knows? Maybe he likes the Chinese Bible the best. Do I need to pray to find favor with God? Where? When? How much? How often? Maybe you'll say to me, Pastor... None of those things ultimately, ultimately gives us favor with God. Only, we must only trust in who Jesus is and what he's done for us. Well, I'd say you're right. But I found in my personal experience and then also in the experience of others is that oftentimes after we've become a Christian, we know, okay, we would say, yes, God saved me by grace, but now that I'm a Christian... Now that I know better, 
If I don't do X, Y, and Z, will God still love me? If I don't read my Bible, if I don't go to church, I know God, I know Jesus. It's only because of Jesus God loves me in the first place, but don't now I have to do all these things to keep God's love? The question is, what is it in the end that really saves me? That's what Galatians is about. But we have a long way to go before we get a full-orbed answer to that question. Long way, so hang with me. But we're going to begin to answer that question right now in Galatians chapter 1, in verses 1 through 5. So if you have a Bible and if you're able and willing, would you please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. Galatians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. The word of God. You may be seated. There's two things we're going to see from our text this morning. Two things we're going to see. The authority of Paul's gospel and the finality of Paul's gospel. The authority of Paul's gospel and the finality of Paul's gospel. First, the authority of Paul's gospel. Again, verses 1 and 2. Paul says that he is an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me. So, we have, to, we have to understand a little bit about the book of Galatians to understand what Paul is getting at here because already, and this is unusual for Paul in most of his letters, it's unusual, but already in the opening lines, he is pointing towards what he's going to get at in the rest of the book. So we have to understand, we have to understand that, and we have to understand a little bit about Paul. And since it's this our first systematic time going through a book and one of Paul's letters, let's talk about and explain who Paul is a little bit. Paul says that he is an apostle. Now, what does that mean? We talked about it uh, uh, not too long ago. That oftentimes in the New Testament, the term apostle is used in a technical sense to mean someone who was of, who has, with their own two eyes, physically seen Jesus Christ risen from the dead and, and have been given a special commission by him to be an authoritative witness of Christ, of his teaching, of his resurrection, and of his, of his coming. They, they are a person that Jesus Christ has specifically appointed to lay the foundations of the church. And Paul understood himself to be one of these people, to, under, to be an apostle. Now, if you know about the Apostle Paul, the first time we're introduced to the Apostle Paul is the book of Acts, when uh, the first Christian martyr is killed by stoning in Jerusalem, Stephen, the Apostle Paul is there. Of course, there he's not called the Apostle Paul, he's called Saul of Tarsus. A Pharisee, a religious leader, a Jew of Jews, circumcised on the eighth day, a member of the tribe of Benjamin, blameless according to the law. 
And he and the people who are stoning Stephen lay their garments at his feet, and he watches approvingly. And Paul himself identifies, well, well, knows and says that he was a, a zealous persecutor of the church. He hated Christians. This was a false Jewish cult bringing, teaching false, uh, uh, falsehoods about God, saying that this Christ, this Jesus was the Messiah when surely he wasn't the Messiah because what kind of Messiah would die on a cross? And, and it's not just that Paul hated Christians, but Paul felt a personal sense of calling to persecute and kill Christians. It wasn't just that he was sitting in Jerusalem saying, oh, I can't stand those Christians. It was that he felt, a, he, had a pers- he felt like he had a personal calling to stamp Christianity out. Therefore, he traveled around the, the eastern Mediterranean to have Christians arrested and have them bring back to Jerusalem to try and have them uh, put in prison and killed. And then one day, Paul is traveling on the road to Damascus. And Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ comes and he blindsides him, literally blindsides him. And what's fascinating about the life of Paul is that Paul's conversion is not long and drawn out. Some of you may have experienced that. Maybe you wrestled with the truths of God for a long time before you finally became a Christian. But the interesting thing about Paul is that was not the case. One second, he's breathing out blasphemies against the Lord Jesus Christ, and the next second, he's a Christian. Why? Because he saw the risen Lord Jesus. He saw him, and he was immediately converted. So Christianity isn't just just a, a set of beliefs or principles about how we should live our lives. Christianity is ultimately and first and foremost a person, and when you meet this person, you will become a Christian too. Paul didn't wrestle with it. He didn't think about it. He encountered the Lord Jesus, and the first words out of his mouth was, Who are you, Lord? You see, he didn't know who he was talking to. He just knew whoever it was, that person was Lord. When Paul gets to Damascus, uh, God speaks to a man named Ananias to tell him to go talk to Paul. And Ananias is like, I don't want to go talk to that dude. He's killing Christians. And this is what God says to him, to Ananias. He says, go, for he, Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Paul, when he, when he recounts his own conversion, uh, later in the book of Acts, in Acts 26, he says, At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice uh, in the Hebrew language saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise, stand, up, stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. To open their eyes so that, they may be, so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. 
that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Paul in Galatians chapter 1 verse 1 says that he is an apostle not from men nor through man but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. What does that mean? Paul didn't choose to be an apostle. He he wasn't going to Damascus saying, I'm going to make sure every Gentile knows how they can be saved from their sins because a man has risen from the dead named Jesus Christ. He didn't choose to be an apostle. He didn't choose to, to be an apostle. God chose him. Jesus Christ chose him and called him out and appointed him with this divine task to proclaim the gospel to Gentiles, to kings, to Jews, to everyone. Paul didn't choose to be an apostle. He was chosen. He, wasn't, he was chosen by Jesus Christ. Another, he didn't get his authority from another apostle. It wasn't that P, Peter and James and John in Jerusalem kind of had a council and said, you know, we're, we're going to, you know, this guy, we're going to, you know, call him to be an apostle. He seems like a pretty good dude. That's not what happened. But rather through the d- direct divine agency from Jesus Christ himself, Paul received his calling. And what does this say about Paul's message? Remember, we're talking about the authority of Paul's gospel. What does this say about Paul's message? It means that Paul's message was not, his authority was not dependent on anyone else. Remember what Paul said? He said, he said uh, Jesus told Paul, I'll call you to be a witness on all the things that I will reveal to you. I, in other words, Jesus was going to personally teach Paul, the truth of the gospel. That means his gospel was 100% accurate, that his authority was legitimate. and That, this, that doesn't mean that his gospel wasn't matched or, or uh, wasn't matched, didn't match the a gospel that the other apostles were preaching in Jerusalem. It did. But rather it means that he didn't have to fact check his gospel with the other apostles because he got it directly from Jesus. And you can already read, if you're perceptive, you can, you can sense the defensiveness in Paul's very first line of this letter. He says, I'm an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ. Well, why is Paul so defensive? Well, if you read the book of Galatians, what you'll see is that false teachers have slipped in to the churches of Galatia, and they are undermining Paul's authority. They're saying that he's not a true apostle. They're saying, they're saying that if he has any kind of authority at all, it, it had to come from the other apostles. And, and, he might, and it might have, they might have even been saying he's teaching a different gospel than the ones that the, that the other apostles are teaching in Jerusalem. They were, they were undermining his authority. They called into question Paul's message. Now think about it. I believe that the churches of Galatia that he was talking to, there's some debate there, but is, were the churches that he preached the gospel to in his first missionary journey, which is the churches of Iconium, Lystra, and Derby, and others. And if you remember what happened, when Paul goes and preaches the gospel, almost everywhere he goes, what happens? He's run out of town. He's chased by mobs. He's attacked. He's stoned. So think about it. Paul receives a direct divine revelation from Jesus Christ to be an apostle to the Gentiles, he goes to these Gentiles to proclaim the good news of Christ, and in so doing, he is 
persecuted, he suffers, he's stoned, he's chased by mobs. Everywhere he goes, this happens to him. But no, he endures, he preaches the gospel, he plants, he plants pure churches within each of these towns, and then he goes away, and someone comes in and preaches a false gospel. Can you imagine? You'd be mad too. And Paul's mad. And he's saying, he's saying, who do, they, I, I've seen the Lord Jesus. I didn't receive my authority from man, but from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, compared to the Galatians, you and I have both advantages and disadvantages. Both advantages and disadvantages. Now, the Galatians had this advantage, this particular advantage. You know, it would be nice if when we read the Bible, we didn't understand something. We could just go to the Apostle Paul and say, hey, man, you know, what does this mean? That would be real nice. Probably solve a lot of problems, okay? So that would be real nice. They had that advantage. But they also were at a disadvantage because what do we have that they don't? We have the canonized full New Testament scriptures that have been confirmed by the apostles and the church. So back in the day of the Galatians, if someone came to you preaching a different, a, a different doctrine, you couldn't just say, well, let's open up our Bibles, our New Testament, because you didn't have one yet. Paul wrote the New Testament when he wrote the letter to Galatians. He was writing the New Testament. And so if someone came claiming this authority, you had to be able to, to, able to discern whether or not they were speaking the truth. But we praise God that Paul, when his authority was challenged, he stood his ground so that the pure gospel was preserved for us in the book of the New Testament, in the Bible, down through the ages so that we have the pure gospel of Jesus Christ today. Because if Paul didn't stand his ground and if his authority wasn't validated... All of us would have to be Jews to be Christians. That would be a serious problem. But we, we have an advantage. We have the canonized scriptures. So what does that mean when someone comes to town with a new teaching? When you see something on TV, because you know if they're on TV, it's true, right? When you, when, when all this, when you read something on the internet, okay, what do we do? We, we be Bereans. We examine the scriptures, I invite you, every time I preach the, the word, to test me. If you think I haven't handled the text correctly, at least wait till after the service, okay? But just, but you know, tell me about it and we can talk about it, okay? And if I'm wrong, I'm, I'm glad to be corrected by the scriptures. And we examine the scriptures, why? Because ultimately we examine the scriptures so that they can examine us. So that we can be changed and conformed by the word of God to the image of God. Paul had to defend his authority against false teachers. And because he did not give in but proved the legitimacy of his authority, we have the pure message handed down to us. Now Paul says that his authority, his apostleship was not from man nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised Christ from the dead. Now, why would Paul mention, mention the resurrection at this point? I think um, a, a professor at Southern Seminary wrote a commentary, uh, Tom Schreiner, and, and he says, I think he's probably right. Why mention the resurrection here? Well, the burden of the letter of Galatians 
is to refute those who would demand circumcision for salvation. They were saying that if you wanted to be a good, faithful Christian, you had to become a Jew first and then be- and, and believe in Christ. Could you imagine being a grown man and someone comes and tells you that's what you have to do to be saved? Besides the fact that to become a Jew, then you'd have to keep all the laws, the dietary laws, the worship laws. But so what is happening? What were these what were these false teachers doing? They were turning back the clock on salvation history. Jesus Christ Jesus Christ came in to, to do something new, to bring in something different. They were, they were turning back the clock saying, no, you have to obey the law and believe in Jesus to be saved. They were, but they, in other words, they were adding works to faith in their salvation. They were adding law back to grace. But the problem is, is that Jesus had to come precisely because the law can't save you. All the law does, if there's a bar up here, all right, and, and, and it, you know, it's the, and the bar is God's standard of righteousness. God says, be holy as I am holy. So if you want to stand in the presence of a holy God, what do you have to do? Oh, it's easy. Just be perfectly righteous as God is righteous, right? You want to jump up and try to grab that? Or do you want someone else to jump up for you precisely because you can't attain it? Do you want to be measured in your relationship to God by how well you keep God's commands or by the grace of God in Jesus Christ? How do you want to relate to God? Do you want to go back to the old way or do you want to embrace the new way of Christ? Jesus Christ fulfilled the Old Testament law on our behalf. He paid the penalty for our sin so that we could be forgiven. And now we relate to God in the new way. Paul says the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Our our relationship to God is through faith in Christ and not the law. In other words, if if you add to the gospel, you lose the gospel. If you try to add to your own salvation, you lose your salvation. We cannot add to anything Christ has done. When, when Paul says that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead, what is he saying? He's saying, remember in the Garden of Eden what happened? God gave them a law. Don't eat the fruit, the, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What happened? They broke the law. What entered into the world? Death. What did God do when they broke the law? Do you remember? He killed some animals. He made a sacrifice, and he clothed them in the skin of the dead animals. What's God saying? It's God saying, you have allowed sin into the world, but I'm going to make a sacrifice that's going to cover your nakedness and, bring, and ultimately bring you back to me. We can't, we can't, we, we're, we're sinners, we're broken, we can't, we can't work our way to God. So God came down to us. That's the gospel. What does this mean? It means that we must beware of elevating our traditions to the level of orthodoxy, okay, or as a test of faithfulness. Now, this is important, and I'll just give you one example. And I don't know, I'm not picking anybody, I don't know if anyone like this is, like, like, like this is in here, but there are some people, for example, 
who, if you don't read the KJV Bible, you are sub-Christian, okay? Now, nothing against KJV. It's a good translation. You know, if I lived in 1611, I would read the KJV, okay? But I don't, okay? Now, I have a friend who worked at Lifeway for six years, and he said that you would be astounded at the people who come into Lifeway and would tell him, a Bible salesman, about how, about how, <laughs> about how the Apostle Paul read the King James Version of the Bible. <laughs> because we all know the Apostle Paul knew English. <laughs> now, let me, he was writing the New Testament in Greek, folks. He didn't need English. Okay? In other words... If we take a tradition, nothing wrong with KJV, but if we take a tradition and elevate it to the level of orthodoxy, you're losing grace. You know, there's an old song. Actually, I, I kind of like the song. It's kind of a fun song. It says, just give me that old-time religion. Give me that old-time religion. It's good enough for me. It's good enough for the Apostle Paul. It's good enough for me. <laughs> But don't, did you know that there was a time when, when they started introducing organs into the church? There was a lot of people singing that song saying, give me that old time religion when we sang just our voices, no organ. Do you know when hymns started to be written, a lot of people thought the church was going down the drain? Why? Because what did they sing before hymns? They only sang the Psalms. They opened up to the book of Psalms and sang this. They, when people started singing hymns, they, they sang back to them. Give me that old time religion where we just sang the songs. Nothing's wrong with something being old. I mean, nothing's, just because it's old doesn't make it bad or make it necessarily good. It just means that it, it is what it is. The point is, is this. Every generation, every generation has to strive to be faithful to the gospel in their generation. And if nothing ever changes, we can cling to our traditions as if they were written by the finger of God. And if we do that, we can find ourselves in a very dangerous place. And so we always have to examine ourselves by the word of God and say what the word of God says and align ourselves to that as best as possible in our day. And a lot of people think about this. Think about these, these Judaizers. They're going in to the Galatian churches and saying, look, you have to be circumcised in order to be a true Christian. Well, think about it. You're, you're Galatian. Many of them were probably Gentiles, not Jews. They didn't really know the Old Testament that well. Someone comes in and, saying, and, and they say, oh, look, well, look, all the Jews were circumcised. That's how we've always done it. Right? It would make, no, I'm serious. It would make perfect sense. Oh, well, of course I should be circumcised. It would make perfect sense. The Judaizers came into the Galatian churches and were telling the Galatians, you want that old-time religion. But Paul says, Jesus, Jesus says, you got to put new wine in new wineskins or else it'll burst. But, and what the problem is is that the Jews... Jesus told the Jews they should have known this, but they didn't get it. In Isaiah chapter 43, God, and in many places in the Old Testament, he'll say things like this. In Isaiah 43, 18, it says, Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. 
Now it springs forth, do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people who I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. If you read your Old Testament carefully, it was clear that God was going to do something new through Christ. He's going to bring in a change, a new way to relate to God. Jesus, when before on the night that he took the bread and the cup before he was crucified, he said, behold, this is the new covenant in my blood. He was doing something new. And they missed it. So notice what we learn about Paul's authority. It was, it was not from men, but it was from God himself. God doing something new. And we have to understand it. And finally, in verse 2, Paul says, all the brothers who are with me. So we just need to know that even though Paul, even though Paul held fast to his unique authority as an apostle, he did not believe that that diminished the fact that his teaching also needed to be in accord with what the other apostles were teaching and what the church of Jesus Christ as a whole believed. When he wrote this letter, he said he wasn't writing just in his own name, but with all the brothers, he says, who are with me. This is important because I don't know if if you've seen the news. uh, The Mormon church has just elected a new like president or apostle or something. Who, Who they believe, and the way the Mormon church, in fact, was started was a guy came up and said, God has spoken to me. And I have this new revelation, and this is, this, is, this is the truth. And so it's important, the, the, we can, it's important as Christians to know the significance of community. Lots of people today downplay the church, and I don't deny the church has its problems, but so do you. That's why you need church, okay? Because we need each other. You know what's dangerous when... You know how most cults are started when someone gets alone and says, I'm not going to listen to the church. I'm not going to listen to what anyone else ever says. I'm just going to read the Bible for myself and and see what it says. That's dangerous. I mean, it's good to read the Bible, but when you, you can't, you can't just presume to be able to have a clear perspective. You got to unite yourself with the body of Christ throughout the ages to understand the Bible correctly. And so we have the authority of Paul's gospel. Next, we see the finality of Paul's gospel. The finality of Paul's gospel. Verses 3 through 5. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So what is Paul saying here? He's already, again, getting at the content of his letter. Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins. That's what he's talking about in this letter. If you want to go back to circumcision, if you want to go back to law keeping, what you are trying to do is you're trying to give yourself for your sins. And that's never going to work. What was circumcision? It was the cutting off of the flesh. 
What, what did it represent? It represented the cutting off of the body of sin, the body of flesh, so that you're set apart for newness of life in God, in Christ. But what was circumcision? It was just a symbol. But now Christ has come, and Christ has literally been cut off in his flesh. Why? For our sake, for our sin. <laughs> so, that, so that we don't have to be. We stand righteous before God, not because of our law keeping, because we're, we're lawbreakers. But we stand righteous before God because Jesus Christ came and kept the law on our behalf. Perfectly, without sin. And if we believe in him, the Bible says we are united through him by faith. We are clothed with his righteousness. Christ gave himself for our sins. Christ, the Bible says, is the full and final revelation of God. If you read the Old Testament, everything is, everything is pointing, everything is groaning, everything is saying we need something that's not here yet. There's this, there's this seed of the woman who's going to crush the head of the serpent. There's this, there's this prophet like Moses who we need to listen to. There's this king like David, who's going to set up a righteous rule. But you read the Old Testament and nothing ever comes. There's no one there. And then one day, a child is born. A son is given. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins once for all in order to bring us to God. Would we then try to turn around and then try to bring ourselves to God? Paul says he gave himself for our sins. Why? To deliver us from the present evil age. To deliver us from the present evil age. What is Paul talking about? You have to understand that in the Bible, their, their view of the ages, okay? They basically viewed that there was, there was two ages. There was this age and the age to come. There was the present evil age and the, the, the age to come, the kingdom of God. And Jesus said interesting things. He would, he would tell parable. He would say things like, if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then, then God's kingdom has come upon you. But then he would say other things like, um, stuff like the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, and it's, it's spreading and growing. And then he would say other things like, and then Paul would say things like, um, whoever lives in sexual morality, etc., will not see the kingdom of God. And you read the Bible and you're like, well, well what is it? Is the kingdom of God now? Did Jesus bring it in, or is it later? Is it coming? The answer the Bible gives is yes. Jesus came, and what did he do? He inaugurated the age to come. It's here. It's just not consummated yet. It's here, but it's not in its final form. It started, but it hasn't fully yet become what it's going to be. And the easiest way to see this and to understand that is to think about your own self and how you battle sin in your heart. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, this is what Paul says. 
In this tent, he's talking about our bodies. In this tent, we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. That's our resurrection body. He said, if indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. What does that mean? That word guarantee, is, it means like a down payment. It means like an earnest. If you're a little bit older, you may know what that word means. It's earnest money. What it means is that now, already now, God has given us his Spirit. That is that the new age to come, the new life in the spirit is already here. The spirit lives inside you if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. But, but we also live in broken bodies. We groan. Lots of us woke up this morning and groan. Because we know that our bodies ache and our bodies get sick and our bodies die. Not just that, but we face temptations in our flesh. That war against our soul. In other words... We are citizens, we, we live in the overlap of the ages. You see it? The old is passing away. The new has come, and it's becoming even brighter day by day. And you live in the overlap. We have been given new life now, but when we, when we, uh, when we see him, we shall become like him because we'll see him as he is. And so we've been given new life now. And Christ came to deliver us from this present age. But if we go back to the old way, if we go back to the old way of living under the law, we'd be, we would be living as if the present evil age was to last forever. And that's just not the case. The new is coming in, and it supersedes the old. And then all this, Paul says, in conclusion, is according to, God the Fa- according to the will of God the Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. In other words, all of this, all of salvation history, all of redemptive history, is a plan. And it's, it's a plan that's so great that no human being could have made it up. And you are part of that plan. And we must live where we are in part of that plan. And we can't go back to the old. We don't want to go back to the old. We live in the new. And so what do we have to do in light of these things? We need to understand and accept the tension that we live in in the overlap of the ages. We are citizens of the United States, but let me tell you something. The United States is not going to be here forever. It's going to pass away, but we're also citizens of a heavenly kingdom, a kingdom that will endure forever. And so we rest on the unshakable truth of who Christ is, what he has come to do, doing away with the old and bringing the new. And we look to Christ. The scripture says of David that he was faithful in his generation. Well, what did David do? He, he was actually an innovator in lots of things. He brought in, he, he assigned the order of priests different places, and he, and he um, 
brought different types of worship into the temple. That's just an example, but it just goes to say that every generation we have to say, what does God want me to do? What does God want us to do? What, what one generation did, it worked for them perfectly, but it, it may not be what God wants us to do right here and right now. We always submit ourselves to the word of God. And as we hold fast to this pure and free gospel, living between the ages, trusting in what Christ has done, God will bring his kingdom come. You know, I was, I was really encouraged this morning as I was... The Lord just reminded me, thinking about this church, praying for our church, and, and how the Lord can use us and lead us and, and what he wants to, to, to do through us. And then Jesus just reminded me. Um, it was like he just kind of poked me on the shoulder and, and looked at me and, and said, Chad, I will build my church. We, can, we need to work. We need to work hard. We need to labor. But look, Jesus builds his church. We don't have to worry about it. He's going to build his church. 